0: Um, today I am uh, really excited about what I feel God has put in my heart. It's something God has been working into my life for some time now. And um, Doug mentioned him and I had the privilege of going with to uh, to go to England to go to the Advanced Global Conference. And uh, it, it, part of what I want to say today is what was emphasised there. And I really feel like God is doing something in our movement. Uh, and so in a little while we'll be looking at Ephesians and um, Philippians 2, where we'll be uh, digging into that together. But I do want to position us a little bit because um, I want you to understand uh, what is happening in, in our movement of churches and, and why I think today, uh, today's message is going to help us um, sort of understand some of the trajectory of where Advance is heading and where we want to be tracking alongside uh, as we move forward. Um, Advance is a group of churches that are on mission together, and the whole mission of Advance is to plant and strengthen churches. And uh, when we started this church, or, or sort of restarted it nine and a half years ago, uh, a bunch of us came from a bigger church, about 40 of us, and there was a church up the road, still their God First Parks. They heard we were coming here uh, to plant this church, and instead of feeling like we were a threat or we were on their turf, they gave us a, gift, a financial gift to get us going. And uh, we just were quite amazed with that. And uh, that sort of started a connection with them, and they were part of this thing called Advance. And, you know, uh, Greg, the leader there, and Doug started meeting up and talking to one another, and uh, that started a relationship. And so we grew together with Advance. At that point, I think there was about 10 or 15 churches throughout South Africa. And um, over over the next sort of nine years, this thing has grown to about, I think we're nearing 200 churches worldwide in every continent, and we heard news at the conference that there are even about 20 churches uh, that have joined us who, who are from Nepal, like in the mountains of Nepal. Like as you fly in and you land in the country, it takes you two days to hike into the mountains to get there. Like so advances even in those kind of areas, and God has been doing such amazing things just to hear what he's doing in our movement. But um, it hasn't been all rainbows and unicorns. Uh, especially the last eighteen months it 's been a really tough time for for our movement our, our, The leader who started advance um, has been stepped down from ministry and leadership and uh, there have been some personal failures and, and hidden sin that have that have come to the fore i 'm not going to get into the details you can read about it on the website if you want to but he 's disqualified himself from leadership. Another one of the leaders is is taking a season of stepping down to sort of um, be restored and take a a moment just to, for God to work in his heart and heal him. And so there's been all this going on. It's been very painful for the leaders. And I think just it has shook many of the people who were under their leadership. We didn't see any of it coming. It came as a bit of a surprise. And I think just in light of what has been happening with many leaders in the last couple of years, all the way from Bill Hybels to Ravi Zacharias to Mark Driscoll, and even now to Brian Houston, this thing is like an epidemic. In, in the church, and it's been rocking us, and for it to happen in our own movement has been just devastating. But at this conference, I was just so encouraged to hear how the advanced leaders have been um, speaking about this and addressing it. There have been no cover ups, there have been a full investigations, and it's been made public, and it's been very open, and it's been dealt with properly. And the reason why I mention all of this to position us this morning. Is this? They gave us some of, of what they want to see happen in our movement going forward, and this is sort of what they they said to us. And if I want to summarize what sort of what I'm saying today and what they were saying uh, in a sentence, it's basically this: If we're going to have healthy churches, we need healthy leaders, leaders who are free from sin, who are free from idols, who are above reproach, and who are humble, and um, they even took, I think Doug mentioned last week, they took an offering, uh, and every year they do this, or every global they do this, and they committed to use it in, in three ways. One was to plant new churches and support churches, but one of the three slices of the pie is to develop uh, resources to help leaders in our movement become more emotionally healthy, to create resources and training, and to maybe even uh, have a little to help leaders go for counseling if they need it, to keep us from burning out, to keep us from crashing and burning. One guy even said he just doesn't want to lose any more friends. And so this has been uh, just a beautiful thing for us to step into. And so this morning, as we look at being inwardly healthy, I really want to encourage us to just sort of grab onto the two, two words this morning. The two words are humble and hungry. Uh, that God would help work in our hearts to help us become less and just that we we would be uh, in humble relationships with one another and healthy in those ways, but at the same time maintain our hunger for Him and for His mission. And so we're going to be looking at uh, Philippians chapter 2, got a Bible you can turn there from uh, verses 1 to 18. Uh, If you were here last week, Doug preached on the end of Philippians 1, and just to say this is not a... Uh, This is how it happened to work. Um, If you're a note-taker, I'm going to be looking at three sections this morning. What the text has to say about being humble, what the text has to say about being, being happy, and then some practical applications for us as a church. What does this mean for us as a church? So let's look together firstly at what the text says about being humble. I'll be looking at verses 1 to 11. Let's read together. It says this. Then, there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in Spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility... Consider others as more important than yourselves. To just, not to in interests, but rather to the interests of others. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of... To not consider by the Instead, emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity, And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We're going to just... For now, as we look at being humble. So what is Paul encouraging the church to be here? He he is encouraging us towards unity. He says, be of the same mind. Feel like a team on mission. Be a united church. And so I unpack what that quite looks like. I just want us to notice something very encouraging. He's making an, an assumption. And the assumption is a really important one. The assumption is that we're in community together. The assumption is that we're recognizing how much we need each other, that we are dependent on one one another, and we need uh, each other. And so he encourages them towards unity. I'm not quite sure what the circumstances are. There are some clues, which we'll unpack later. But there seems to be some sort of disunity in the church, which is why he's encouraging them to be unified, to have one mind. And doesn't this describe church life so often? It's this fight for one another in the midst of our mess. This is a beautiful, messy place, like, uh, like my family. My, my daughter Hannah will hug brother Aaron, and then the ne- next minute she'll bash him on the head. And it's similar in the church. We'll hurt each other, but we will love each other. And we need each other. We need each other. We need to have each other's backs, not just be at each other's throats. And so if you've been heard in community, of course we're not going to heal in isolation. And so there's this assumption of being with one another for each other's good and blessing. And so he calls them to unity. And he starts out by giving a few reasons why this unity is so beautiful and how we can actually grow in it. And he says then, verse uh, 1, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, then be unified. And his argument is essentially that these things should produce unity and moving towards one another. So let's just briefly unpack that. He says, if there's any encouragement in Christ. Let's look again. What was the mission of Christ? to save people, and to gather a church together, right? And so what's the encouragement there? Just as Jesus has gathered his church, so we gather as a church and remain committed there. says if there's any consolation of love, again, Jesus has poured his love out into his hearts, and so we can pour out his love to one another. If there's any fellowship of the Spirit, right? If you're a you have and I have the same Holy Spirit. And so we get to express that by coming together in fellowship. Physically, I don't just mean I'll be in spirit. Then he says, if there's any affection and mercy. And this one, as I've been just reflecting on it this week, this is hit fresh force. If there's any affection and mercy. Of course, Jesus has shown us Affection and mercy. Paul is doing here, he's making yet another assumption. That when we gather together as a church, we can assume that people need, we, we all need affection and mercy. We know that we're coming in here, people coming in here with great brokenness and pain and hurts and burdens. I think we can know that because we're carrying in our stuff. And how great it is to be able to love and care for one another, forgive one another, and move towards one another, as treating each other like family, like this family we've been made a part of in the kingdom of God. And to to love each other with this affection and mercy, especially when we feel like each other don't actually deserve it. See, friends, there are people in this room who you need to love. And there are people who need to love you In this room, this is the church. See, Will needs Greg to show him mercy. Right? Great patience, my brother. Great patience. Jenna needs Doug to show her affection. Right? eh? This is how the church works. Church is made that we... A flourish where there is mutual responsibility and care and love for one another. Without each other, we're just not going to make it. But in there, he gives us yet another thing about how this unity grows. And you see what he says there. How do we cultivate unity? Is it just a commitment, an effort? Of course, it is partly that, but it's more than that. He actually says the answer is humility. Look at verse 3 and 4. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, and how does he define it? Consider others as more important than yourselves. And so everyone should not look to his own interests, but rather the interests of others. See the call there? There's a warning against selfish ambition and pride and a call serving one another. And I think... Churches and leaders, we lose our way. And Christians, we lose our way when we forget. They're all about us. The church flourishes when we serve uh, one another. And I've just been overwhelmed as I've been thinking about this, and I'm still processing just the fall of leaders. And there's been a very popular podcast, or popular at least for, for people in ministry, it has been a popular podcast, Doc and fall of a, a prominent, uh, all of its leader. And uh, Doug and I have spent hours discussing this. It's, it's, it's been startling. Every episode is a, a monumental drama documenting the catastrophic failures of, of this guy and, and, and the leaders around him. And it all comes back to the same thing. It's the same story every time. What went wrong? It became about their glory. So instead of loving the church, they used the church. And they became domineering and controlling. They avoided accountability. And and ultimately, they became settled and forgot the call to self-sacrificial serving and loving the sheep at their own expense. See, that's what sin does in us. That's why it says, it talks about selfish ambition and and, and conceit and just the self-centeredness that's Produces in us that is our natural default as people. We are inward looking naturally, and we forget the call to serve one another and to see one another, uh, to see serving one another as an amazing privilege and goal. Even just at a personal level, I, I've had a, a friend recently who I've was, I was I studied church planning, many things together. And he just left his church. I don't even know where his faith is. And all of this, it's just been a shake. I think what it's done more than anything else is it's made me. Because I know God, without you, I'm next. Without you, without you you guarding me, I'm next. And so what does it do in us when we just recognize this? Because this is not... Christian leaders, this is for each one of us. What do we, how do we combat this inward-looking pride that will ultimately lead us there? I think what Paul's getting us to here is this, that the call to love each other well is always a call to self-sacrifice and serving. So he just said it there, consider others more important than yourselves. Consider the interests of others. Of course, it's not just moralism. Because what's the ultimate reason to do this? What does he tell us? Verses 5 to 11. It says this is what Jesus does. Isn't this the picture of Jesus? He had every right to be the one that was worshipped. And, 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 I mean, he is, but you hear what I'm saying? He, it, said, it says there, he had every reason to stay in heaven, but he didn't consider it something to be exploited. Rather, out of his us, he gave it up. He came down. He served us and he saved us. It says there he was willing to give it up, willing to give up his whole life, not just to die, but it says, even to die on a cross. Do you know what it's saying there? Even to die on a cross. It's saying that Jesus gave himself not just humility, but actually to humiliation. That's the level that he's able and willing to serve us, to love us. And so Paul is encouraging us with this again. That is that humble, that humble humility of Jesus as he us in those ways, birth the church, and it's going to be the thing that helps the church flourish as we love one another in that same way as he empowers us to do so. And so we can help each other stand firm. We can help each other keep from losing our, our serving one another. And so there's a very great threat to the destruction of our own souls and to the destruction of the church. And Paul is saying it's pride. It's pride in our hearts. We are naturally self-serving. And so how do we combat it? We combat it with humility and serving one another. And what's the result if we do that? It says greater church health, greater church unity, greater mission. There's this beautiful picture of a church that is humble and leaning into one another. And it creates such amazing blessings. He actually now, let's talk about being hungry. Because what he said, verse 12, is he starts with the word therefore, right? In the Bible college, I learned one thing. When you see the word therefore, you have to ask what it's there for, right? That, that is the, the literary question. And so what he's saying is that when we live like this, it helps us become more hungry. It produces uh, an effect and it says therefore my dear friends just as you have always obeyed so now not only in my presence but even more in my absence work out your own salvation with fear and trembling working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose do everything without trembling and arguing that you may be blameless and pure Children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation, among whom you shine like stars in the world, by, by doing what? By holding firm to the word of life. That's Jesus. Then I can boast in the day of Christ that I didn't run or labor for nothing. But even if I am poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial service of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. In the same way, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. And see what Paul is describing here is it's a renewed spiritual fervor. A a desire to run after God, a joyful obedience. Just in a word, I've I've just summarized it as as hunger. Spiritual hunger. And I think as we look at this, we just have to be honest for a moment. And uh, just admit, that's, yes, that's great, but it's that's, that's not quite always how it works. We know our hearts. We struggle. We, we um, doubt. We go through heartache. We, we lose heart. We give up. We disappoint ourselves and others. It's not always easy to run after God with as much further. And, and we go through seasons sometimes where we are struggling. You know the beautiful thing about just being honest about where you're at with your spiritual Hunger is that God already knows. It's not a surprise to him. And he doesn't love you any less if you're less passionate today than you have been in the past. Just as he doesn't love us anymore if we're the most passionate we've ever been. Right? This isn't an this isn't an earning thing. It's not how it works. This is a different thing together. But I would say that Paul is encouraging us if the the long-term position of our hearts is spiritual apathy, we need to ask the deeper questions. And by His grace, pray that He would renew our hunger for Him. This is what a Christian looks like. We're hungry to run after God. And, And I'll just share part of of my story, and I think many of us would resonate with this. I think sometimes the issue isn't a desire for hunger. Sometimes the issue is just an experience of that intimacy. You know, sometimes you go through seasons where, you you know, you're still reading your Bible, you're still praying, you're still trying to obey God. There's no great sin in your life that is distancing yourself from Him, yet you still feel distant for some reason. The the, theologians call this the dark night of the soul. Uh, It's this position that even uh, the greatest full-time Christians struggle with. uh, It's just sometimes hard. You just don't feel the the quickening of your spirit to God's spirit. It's just you feel distant for some reason and you don't know why. Nothing's going wrong in your life. It's just that's the case. And, um, yeah, you you just sort of miss. And I remember early on when I had just become a Christian, I was about uh, 15 or 16, and uh, I was trying to figure it out and find my way, and um, was just like almost crushed with an overwhelming sense of my guilt and shame because of my sin. And uh, I felt like it was, I I was just distant from from God because the gospel hadn't worked its way into my life yet. I hadn't understood that I don't have to have guilt and shame because He's taken it from me. But I was feeling that, and so I was feeling. Just so distant from him. I feel like God was just disciplining me and, and starting a work of dealing with my sin for the first time. And it was painful. And um, I just felt distant from him. And uh, there was a night, I remember, uh, in the worship service, during worship, I did that thing we all do at times. Where you just grab your Bible and you open it. and You're like, God, speak. I, just, I need something just to, just to encourage me, just to know you're still there. I know we all do that at times. And uh, he took me to Hebrews 12, and in that moment, everything changed. And I just wrote it down for us. Hebrews 12, it says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises everyone he accepts as his son. I just remember in that moment of God reminding me, he's my father, son, he loves me. And so he's going to do a work in my life to not push me away, but to draw me closer. I remember in that moment, everything changed. I was in I was a mess. Exactly as I read the verse, the Spirit of God entered my soul with fresh force. It was like I had come home all the way. It was beautiful. And so this kind of hunger for God, what it actually did in me in that moment is I left greater power and joy to keep following him. It became easier even to hunger after him. And so there's this, this hunger, this both end of one desiring a greater communion with God as we know him and we, we spend time with him. We get to know his heart for us and his heart. So there's a communion and then there's a commission. And so he sends us out by the power of his spirit and we hunger after him and, and wanting to live for Him. And that's sort of what Paul is saying in this, uh, this, these verses to us, is that it produces a desire to live for God. And so he says several things here. He says, work out your salvation. He says, be blameless and pure, children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation. He says, shine like stars. See, there's this commission to us again, to live with purpose, for God, but of course we know that this isn't again moralism or behaviour. There are other motivations that happen, and so just in the text earlier about humility, he says, "If there is any this, if there is any this, then be this." Here he's doing the same thing; he's showing us the logic that this hunger for God is coming from somewhere else, and so he gives us three things. And we're just going to unpack them briefly. To he says, work out your salvation. He does not say work for your salvation. See, this is a good thing about God. We can't earn our salvation. There are no works that would make us good enough to deserve this thing. It is a free gift of grace to us. And so no amount of work will earn it. So it's not a, a thing of working for it that we might achieve it one day. We've already received it as a free gift of grace, and now we get to work it out. Isn't that good news? That actually helps us obey, because we're working from salvation, not for salvation. It's good news. Then perhaps the most important thing about this deal, he says, verse 13, he says that this hungry life is a spirit and says that it is God working in you. God is the one getting in us and doing the work. So be filled. Rely on Him. And just by way of analogy, I would say there are two ways to live hungry. One way will kill you, and one way will lead to joy. The way way that kills us is when we think Christianity is like rowing a rowboat. We get in the boat, and we've got our oars Straining away there against the current, we're dying, we're, we're exerting all our energy, we're fading, our souls are shriveling up. The other way is to recognize that the Christian life is more like a sailboat. You lift the sail and the Spirit of God gets in you and He's the one, what does it say, to will and to work. By His Spirit we are empowered. We, just, we are working, we're steering, but it's His power in us. Those, that difference is enormous. The boat, rowboat versus the sailboat. We have the gift of the Spirit to us as we hunger after Him. And what's, what's the conclusion? Where does this lead? Verse uh, seventeen, eighteen. He, he talks about this leads to joy. Hey, not a killjoy as people and the world would make you want to think. Following God is not kill joy. It is a, a, a give joy. It's, it's where joy comes from. And it grows it within us. And so what Paul is warning us against, what's at stake here, is to is to guard ourselves against the spiritual apathy and the loss of spiritual hunger and pers- and pursue him once again to combat spiritual apathy by cultivating a spiritual hunger. Okay, so we've looked at what this means personally, that we can be people of humility and people who are still hungry for our, our God. What does this mean for us as a church? And um, I've written, I'm glad we don't have load shedding because I was quite excited about this one. Uh, I wrote a graph up that I hope will help us understand what's at stake here as a church. And you'll see there, you've got the axis that's humility and pride and then, Hunger and apathy. And the goal is to be top right there. As God, as we've looked in his word, will help us become humble and hungry. That's how we flourish. It's how the church flourishes. But of course, there's a the complete opposite. Of is both pride and apathy. I think throughout scripture, that would be the position of uh, doubt at best, but most likely, if it's a long-term thing, would be unbelief. An unbelieving heart. But there are two other positions that we're seeing here that we need to guard against. And we'll just start with the top left, where there is high humility, but also spiritual apathy. We're hung, where there's no spiritual hunger. And I think what happens as a result is that the church... Comprom- we're going to be very nice, warm people, because there's lots of humility here. But again, we'll compromise in a hundred ways. We'll compromise theologically. And uh, there's not much hunger after God, so we're not asking God, what is your truth? We're just compromise. the culture. And so we'll believe what the culture wants us to do. About a hundred things. Gender, sex, abortion, marriage. We'll just give in to that. And uh, when we look at our discipleship circle here, these are things we want to become the top. Be biblical. When we say be biblical, what we're saying is our truth, our world, our beliefs are shaped by Scripture, and so we want to hunger after God and what He says in His Word, and keep. ourselves from There's a warning here. again, Paul in Romans 1:25. He, he, he sort of explains what this compromised position can look like at, like at times. He says they exchange the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and, ser- and served what has been created instead of the Creator who is praised forever. Right, so that's one possibility for the church. We, we need to be a church that stands firm and is just hungry for God and His Word and following His truth. But there is another threat for us as a church. And it's uh, if you can go back to the previous graph there, it is the... There we go. It is the bottom right where there's lots of hunger for God. People are on fire, but we're also full of pride. That produces a legalism. A spiritual uh, hunger is a great thing. You know, the combo with pride is a poison. That's where we get legalism. That's where we become a church of Pharisees. It's a culture that kills uh, us. At best, what it will result in is using people instead of loving them. But at worst, it will become what we're seeing with all the leaders who are losing their way and controlling and domineering leadership and all those sorts of things. And Paul speaks about his focus in this text. Nothing out of selfishness or conceit. And so what he's saying is there's a pride that left to itself will result in this. A legalism. And it's a culture that will kill us as a church. We'll have to come to church pretending like we have it all together. And having to perform and pretend. We can't be real with one another. We have to pretend we know everything. There'll be lots of judgment and little care and encouragement. There'll be no room for vulnerability and being honest to about how we're really feeling. There's, there's a hundred ways Um, This legalism kills Christian community, but in essence, just a culture of grace won't exist. And we just don't want to be these these people. We want this room to be a room of grace. And when we meet together in our midweek gatherings and when we meet together in all our ministries, we want to have a culture that is high in humility and high in hunger. We want to spill on in both these ways. And uh, at the used a brilliant analogy of how this actually changes how we step into the room when we gather. And, and his, uh, his essential point was this, is that we are all broken but some of us will do our best to hide it from one another and to pretend, whereas others will own it. And the, the imagery he uses is that he said, look, if we all get uh, hurt in the leg, one person will pretend he's not hurt, he'll just pretend he's got a swagger and walk around with a swagger, while the other person will admit he's got a limp, and walk around with a limp. You see the difference? One is pretending uh, that we're better than we are. The other is owning our brokenness and failure. And this church, we want this to be a place where we can walk with a limp because it's a place of affection and mercy, especially if you're a leader. It's so much better to lead with a limp to pretend and act and be fake. We want to be people of high humility. Not trying to become more, but actually trying to become less so that others can thrive. Not trying to look the part, but just being real with others and allowing God to do His work in us. So as we close this morning, there's great strength when the church is hungry. And I just want to encourage us towards this. This is the secret source of a gospel saturated church. This is so important, and I'm just going to read for us 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11. It's a sort of a parting word again from Paul, just to us, that sort of summarizes what we've looked at today. He says, finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice, become mature, be encouraged, be of the same mind, be at peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. I just love that, a humility towards one another that produces unity and a hunger to know God and to have him fill our hearts. Let's just pray together. Oh God, I'm just so thankful once again that what we've done today is not us trying to be perfect people and earn our residence in the church but that uh, no matter how we're doing, no matter when we make mistakes, no matter when we sin uh, against one another, we are part of your church simply because you're the one who has saved us. And that we get the privilege of being together as a family, that we get the privilege week after week to join together in worship of your name and to love one another. And I do pray that, God. I pray that you would... Continue to cultivate, God, a heart of affection and mercy among one another. I pray, Lord, that you would help us let go of our own self and our own ambitions and that you would purge us from pride. And that this would become increasingly, through the work of your Spirit within us, a place of humility where we serve and love one another, where we lead one another also to be hungry for yourself. God, I pray that you would stir up hunger for your name again. I pray, God, where we have become apathetic or comfortable, God, would you please stir us up once again to know you. Would you encourage us with the gospel? Would you present yourself in our heart in life-changing ways? We want to know you, Lord. And we do want to live with you. We want to know your joy. We want to ask, God, that you, by your spirit, would empower us once again. That this isn't a thing of earning or uh, working off our own steam. But as you get into us, we would be carried along like a sailboat, God. I pray that we would experience the joy that flows from this. That you would continue helping us become more like your son, Jesus, and remembering the gospel. And that you would help us flourish both individually and as a church. I pray this in your mighty name.